What is the good life? The truly satisfying, happy, flourishing life. Nearly all of us desire that. We want a life that's worth living. A life where we feel whole, at peace. The question is, can that life be found? Nearly every worldview casts a vision for what they say that life looks like and how one can attain it, how you aspire for it, how you work up into it. Some worldviews actually say that it's not possible, that no such peaceful, flourishing life even exists. I wonder for you how you would answer that question. What is the truly good, flourishing life? And how is it found? Can it be found? As we might expect, Jesus offers an answer to that question. In fact, Jesus offers an invitation into that life, into the life of wholeness, into the life of peace, of satisfaction, into the truly flourishing life. Don't you want that kind of life? Don't you want to walk in that sort of of life. That's what we're going to see today as we return to the Gospel of Matthew and we come to perhaps the most famous sermon in the Bible, we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 5. In the Bibles near you, in those Bibles, you can find Matthew 5 on page 809. Page 809. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you as we work through it. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open up the larger numbers or the chapter numbers, we're in chapter 5, the smaller numbers, the verse numbers, and I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you a copy. At the back of the room, there's a table with a bunch of Bibles there. Just grab one of those on your way out. Also, next to them are a stack of uh, journals that have the Gospel of Matthew. Those are free as well. And if you open them up on, on the left-hand side, there's the text. On the right-hand side, there's a place to take notes. A lot of people found those helpful. So if you like one of those, you could take one of those as well following the service. So listen as I read along Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Today, as we look at this passage, we see this central theme. Jesus invites us into his gracious kingdom where true flourishing is found. Jesus invites us into his gracious kingdom where true flourishing is found. As we look at our passage, we're going to ask three questions. First, what is this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount? Second, what is blessedness? And then third, what are we to do? So first, what is this sermon? If you've been with us, we started the Gospel of Matthew back in the fall, and we worked our way through the first four chapters, and we paused for a bit. And in those chapters, we were introduced to Jesus of Nazareth, to Jesus Christ. We saw his genealogy, and then his birth. We saw that his family fled to Egypt, and then returned to Nazareth, and then some years passed. And then John the Baptist came onto the scene, John announcing that the promised one was coming. And then Jesus came onto the scene as Jesus was baptized by John, then went into the wilderness and was tempted. And then we saw Jesus begin his ministry. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this was Jesus' message, and it was a massive statement that he was making. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is here, it's at hand, and the reason is because the king is here. The king had come, and that's why the kingdom was breaking in. And therefore, the only response, the only right response, if the king of the universe has come near, is to see him as such, to turn and trust in him, to turn and follow him. And that requires a turning from all because all of us have trusted in other things. We've, we've trusted in other allegiances. We've trusted in ourselves. And so Jesus' call to repent is to turn from all the other things we've been trusting in and turn and trust in him, the king who has come. The call of Jesus, the true king, is to trust in him, in his saving work, in his way, and to embrace him, his ethics, and his values. We saw in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, just a, a brief glimpse of what this ministry looked like. We see that Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus was teaching. He was proclaiming this good news. This good news found in his life. His death, eventually his resurrection, this king who has come, and his healing was a sign, evidence of his power, evidence of who he was, that God has come near, and pointer to what life will be like in his kingdom when it fully comes. And then finally, all will be restored. So as Jesus did this, as he preached in this way, as he proclaimed, as he healed, not unexpectedly the word got out and great crowds began to come to Jesus. That's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5. 
A great crowd has gathered. So the first four chapters of Matthew, we see these various scenes across Jesus' early days. And now, Jesus then turns and we have Jesus teaching for three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are this one sermon the Christians have traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. We see in verse 1 that as the crowds came, Jesus goes up on a mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on a Mount. He's on a mountain or on a hillside. Now, he does that one on, for just, uh, just a, a practical level. If there's a large crowd, you want to communicate to them. It makes sense for the speaker to get a little bit higher. So at one level, that's what Jesus does. But as always, there's usually something more going on. That's happening here as well. Jesus ascends onto the hillside, onto the mountain, because from the mountain, this would be God himself, through Jesus, speaking. And across the history of God's people, God often would speak to his people on the mountain, from the mountain. So, for instance, Moses, the, the great one who would lead God's people, went to Mount Sinai, and there God spoke to Moses. Then Moses took the message to the people. And as we've seen across Matthew, and we see again here, Jesus was the greater Moses, the true deliverer who has come. So Jesus goes on to the mountain, but he also sits down as he begins to teach. This also communicates something in the culture of that day as, as true teachers, philosophers would, would teach from the seated position. So that's what Jesus does here as well. Jesus has announced the good news that the king has come, and now in this sermon, he begins to lay out to describe what life in his kingdom looks like. What it looks like to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. At the end of this, in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of this sermon, Jesus makes clear that the wise person will build his life on this sermon. So it's clear that Jesus intends this to not simply be heard, not simply read and seen to be beautiful and unique, but actually this is where we are to live our lives, ground our lives on this Jesus' words. Now, in this sermon, Jesus is not describing the way by which a person would earn your way into his kingdom. It's very important we don't, important we don't misunderstand. Jesus doesn't say, if you can keep the words of this sermon, then you can come into my kingdom. That's contrary to what we see all across the scriptures, all across the gospel. Jesus came to provide salvation, entrance into this life of the kingdom, all as a free gift, a gift of grace that's received by faith. And then when we receive this gift, then yes, we begin to live in this kingdom and we walk in obedience, following the way of our king, not in order to be saved by him, but because he has saved us. And because he has saved us and is changing us and calling us to the good way of living and here in this sermon, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what it is to look like for us to walk in his way, to trust in him. My friends, if you look at the, the Sermon on the Mount, it is a beautiful sermon. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, honestly, it is a high calling. 
And if you read the Sermon on the Mount clearly, it is drastically, at so many points, out of step with any and every society. And as we make our way through this sermon, week by week, Jesus will speak to us of the needed change in our lives. How we need to change and see change in our thoughts, in our actions. Our actions, yes, but Jesus often presses deeper than only actions. It goes to our thoughts, to our very motives. So this is the sermon, and Jesus begins it in verse 3. And that leads us to our second question, which is this. What is blessedness? Here at verse 2 or 3, your, your Bible likely has a heading, a bold, that says the Beatitudes. That's an unusual term, Beatitudes, that honestly probably most Christians don't think much about. We don't even know what it means. It's just always a term we've used. Where do we get this word, Beatitude? Well, the word beatitude is a transliteration of the Latin word beatus, which is a translation of the original term in the Greek, which was makarios. This original word makarios means something like happy, fortunate, whole, favored, flourishing. Now, these statements like we have from Jesus were called macarisms, and these were common in the ancient world of that day. The the teachers, philosophers would come along and make these macarisms saying, this is the way to what they would say is the blessed life, the whole life, the life of flourishing. And the challenge is in trying to move from that meaning to English translations. Some English translations translate it happy, which most would agree is an just an ineffective translation because at least in our world, we think of happiness often in a much too narrow and passing way. For most of us, think of happiness, happiness is something that, that comes and goes, that's often dependent on our circumstances. So happiness doesn't seem to get at it. Probably most English translations use the term blessed, which on one level is an accurate translation, but still In at least the English view today of that, it's often still too narrow, and it seems more, uh, our view of blessing, a momentary gift from God rather than a state of being or a way of living and existing. And what Jesus is pointing to here is much deeper than that. It is this wholeness of life, the biblical idea of shalom, of peace. It is true flourishing. A number of authors work to try to arrive at the best interpretation of this word. And so I I think flourishing does it as well as any. And that's an author by the name of Jonathan Pennington is someone I've read who who kind of helps explain that. But whatever term you use, we want to see this holistic satisfaction, peace, meaning in life. So Jesus in this sermon is casting a vision of the life of true flourishing. And by this vision, he is inviting people into that. And by this vision, friends, he's inviting you and me into this life. The life that is really life. The life of true flourishing. As we think about these beatitudes, we want to see again that Jesus is not holding these beatitudes out as a way into his kingdom. 
He doesn't say if you somehow cultivate these aspects of your life, then you'll be brought in. They're also not intended to be seen as some sort of a formula, but instead Jesus is saying, if you look at what life in his kingdom is like, it increasingly looks like this. This is the life that is to be expected for the Christian. This is life that in time is to be embraced and even pursued as we follow Jesus, the King. And this life, Jesus wants us to understand and believe, is the truly good life. Now, if we honestly read what Jesus says in this passage, though, the temptation is for Christians to read it through rose-colored glasses because we're familiar with it and we see it only in a positive light. But if we truly hear what Jesus is saying, we'll feel the weight of what he's saying and it's really a shocking description of his unique kingdom. Because what Jesus describes is, is not what we would initially expect to be a part of a kingdom of flourishing. In fact, a number of things that Jesus mentions here are things that we would normally want to avoid, not to embrace. There are things that we wouldn't necessarily want in our lives, and certainly we wouldn't initially think of them as a means of blessing from God. So we typically want to avoid persecution. We try to avoid mourning wherever possible, and, and meekness is not something we typically desire. So it doesn't seem like, it doesn't sound like flourishing. Now, as we think about these Beatitudes, we could go through them one week at a time, one statement, and there's some value in that. The way that we're going to look at them is holistically because I think together they cast the vision for us in a more helpful way. Now, at some point in the future of hope, maybe we'll take them one by one. But today, we're going to think about them as a whole. And so we see the first one, verse 3. Look down at verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is, is an awareness of our own weakness, both materially and spiritually. A knowledge of our own need, of our own poverty, of even our own spiritual bankruptcy. This certainly includes the materially poor, but it's also wider than that. And Jesus is saying that even as these are poor in spirit, they are blessed. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whatever we lack in this life, and at times it may be much that we lack, we are now, Jesus says, heirs of the kingdom. The kingdom is ours now, and it will be fully realized in the future. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Now, there are many reasons, many ways that God's people mourn. If we're self-aware at all, we should, with some regularity, mourn at our own sin as we see how often we rebel, how often we fall short. We also mourn the brokenness of our world. We mourn at injustice that we see, that perhaps we endure. We mourn sickness, suffering, and death in the world. We, we mourn as many people reject the good news of Jesus rather than receiving it. But Jesus says, even as they mourn, even as we mourn, we are blessed. We are knowing true flourishing because they are comforted. For our God is the God of all comfort. 
He comforts his people by the Spirit, and we are comforted by the reality of a sure future hope, a future promise that Christ has made. We see verse 5, blessed are the meek. The meek are those who choose the path of restraint, the path of humility. The meek are those who choose to lower themselves instead of elevate themselves. All others may try to move ahead, but the meek are those who place the interests of others above our own. And Jesus says, even as these are meek, they are whole, they are flourishing because they shall inherit the earth. This is a great inheritance that is promised, so we don't have to run after all that the world may promise us. We don't have to run after everything that everyone else around us runs after, for the world itself will be our inheritance. Then in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is a longing, a desire, an awareness of our own lack and a desire for the true righteousness of God. It's an awareness that we never fully have it in this life, and so we hunger for it, we thirst for it. And Jesus says, even as you hunger and thirst, you're blessed because you will be satisfied. In this life, as we hunger and thirst, God graciously does satisfy. He feeds us through his word and by the Spirit, but we're never fully satisfied in this life, so the hunger returns, the thirst returns. So we hunger, and it is met, but it returns. We're, we're thirsty, and we're satisfied, all the while growing in our joy of this as we anticipate a future day which is coming, in the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with our God forever, and then finally, fully, permanently satisfied. It's that. It's our future. Then in verse 7, blessed are the merciful. This is to be those who are compassionate to others, gentle with others, to be those who freely give out mercy to the people around us, to give to people what they don't deserve, those who are merciful, Jesus says, these are blessed, knowing the truly good life because they receive mercy. It's the very definition of being a Christian, one who has received mercy from God. From first to last, Christians receive mercy. And so we are able to give mercy to others as God gives to us mercy, even as he's promised to give to us new mercies, morning by morning. In verse 8, we see, blessed are the pure in heart. The person who is increasingly walking and living rightly before their God. The, the person who is rejecting what is impure and embracing what is pure. Seeking to be right and godly in what he or she thinks at the innermost level. These who are making progress in this pure in heart, they are, they're blessed. They're experiencing true flourishing because they shall see God. We will know more of God, know Him more fully in this life. Even as we wait for the day when we will be with Him face to face. 
Then in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. The, the people of Jesus' kingdom are those who seek peace, who love peace, who work for peace. We seek peace as much as it depends on us, willing to even sacrifice for the sake of peace. Certainly a part of this is, is the sharing of the good news, the gospel of peace, but it's also working for peace in our lives, in our relationships, in our communities, and in the world. And Jesus says, even as they sacrifice in order to bring peace, they are, they are blessed, they are knowing true flourishing because they shall be called sons of God. And by this, it means son of God is being one who is like God. So he says, when we're growing in this, peacemakers, we are like our God. And you are like your God when you work for peace. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus expands upon this one, verse 11. Look at verse 11. He goes further. He says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophet who were before you. So this is a life marked by opposition, reviling, suffering, persecution for the name of Christ. But Jesus says they are blessed. They're knowing true flourishing because theirs is the kingdom of heaven now and their reward will be great. Therefore, he says, rejoice and be glad. And friend, we see a glimpse of this life in the early days in the book of Acts. As the, the disciples, the, the apostles are preaching the gospel in Jerusalem and they are persecuted, they are beaten, they are in, thrown in jail and they are rejoicing in it. They count it joy that they suffer for the name of Christ. A glimpse of some who are knowing this life of flourishing. So then these together, Jesus says, this is what life in my kingdom is like. Mourning and mercy. Poor in spirit. Hungry and filled. Knowing God. Seeing God. Possessing his kingdom. Now there are certainly different ways of this experienced across our own lives. Even within a number of Christians, we don't all experience it in the exact same way. And, and around the world and throughout history, not all Christians have the exact same experience of this. But this is a comprehensive picture, not that a Christian might be just one of these. But as we mature, as God changes, as we grow in grace increasingly, friends, our, our lives are to look like this. Jesus says, as we look like this, we will find peace, wholeness, flourishing in this life. Now, most in our society, most of us, honestly, wouldn't normally think of this as the life of wholeness, as a flourishing life. Most in our city would not think being poor in spirit or, or being one who mourns or, or one is meek one who's facing opposition as the life that's really the good life. But friends, that's exactly the vision Jesus is holding out. He's saying, trust me, this is life in my kingdom, and this is the very best life. 
It's a life marked by pain and mourning, suffering, a yearning for righteousness, sometimes opposition and persecution, even as we wait for the final return of Christ. And it is in this, Jesus says, that surprisingly you'll find satisfaction. It is in this that you'll actually find wholeness and health. For it's because Jesus promises that we experience God's grace in particular ways when we find ourselves in these various circumstances. So as you find yourself needing to extend mercy, God's mercy is abundant in you. When you find yourself mourning, the Spirit comforts you. Now this flourishing that we find is both already, it is now, and it is not yet. Just like so much of the Christian life is already. We're experiencing some of it now, but it's not yet what it will fully be. So this flourishing life is now. It is already. It is relevant for daily life now, for us to experience here, today, and tomorrow. This flourishing life is our experience of enduring hope in these future promises day by day. And it is not yet. Christians don't understand, we we don't believe that the truly greatest life is experienced now, but it is to be experienced in the life to come. So God is at work in us by His Spirit to, to, to flourish now, even as we await the day when finally in the kingdom of Jesus, when it's fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth, then and only then will the satisfaction be complete and without end. Will the fullness never lead to hunger again? There will no flourishing for eternity. So friends, the power of this reality is that the circumstances of life may look anything but like flourishing, and yet true wholeness, true blessedness is our experience. This doesn't mean that Christians won't experience outward blessings as well. Very often, by God's grace, that is the experience of Christians. We do often experience many blessings in this life, and we receive them as a gift from God. We're grateful for them. So at the outset of his public teaching in Matthew, the outset of this great sermon, Jesus says, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. It is different from every other world. But here is found true wholeness. Here is found true blessedness. And we face the daily question, will we trust that Jesus' way is best? Will I trust that Jesus' kingdom is really where I'm going to rest my hope for today and for eternity? And it's a daily question because we hear voices all around us casting a vision for a different way of counting what's really valuable. Other kingdoms pursuing our affections. So again and again, we have to come back and say, will I or will I not trust Jesus' vision as best? As we move forward in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see Jesus will call us away from some things and he'll call us to some things. He describes, here's how the disciples of Jesus live. He'll call us to resist some things that our world would say are the very essence of flourishing. 
So for instance, Jesus will, will call us away from sort of rampant materialism. He'll call us away from no boundaries of our sexual activity. Even though our world says that's where true flourishing is. Jesus says, I created all things. And it is with a, a wise restraint that true flourishing is found. And our king will say, trust me. Trust me that this way is the way to life. Trust me that this way is the way of real flourishing. So friends, in these words today, Jesus doesn't give us commands to follow, not instructions to keep, but instead an invitation into a different kind of life. And as the sermon continues, these next three chapters, and as we pursue the walk of Jesus, we will increasingly be called to some of the things we see evidenced in these words. Then a third and final question today is, so what are we to do? In light of this call to blessedness, in light of this call to flourishing, what should we do today? Friends, first, we want to see that Jesus shows us this life. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Gospel of Matthew, as we walk through, we're going to see Jesus show us this life of flourishing. We will see that Jesus is humble and poor in spirit. That Jesus mourns, he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He is meek and he is merciful. He is pure in heart. He is a peacemaker and he experiences fullness unlike any other. So we want to see what this life looks like. We look to Jesus. So we want to see Jesus show us this life. We also must also see Jesus' cross and his resurrection. We'll see that build across this gospel. For, for some would say, I like the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't want Jesus' cross. A lot of people in our world, would, if you just ask them, do you like the Sermon on the Mount? They would say, I, I love that. If they say that, I would say, I, I wonder, have they actually read it? Because there are actually some really hard things, high callings there. But two, apart from Jesus' cross and resurrection, the Sermon on the Mount will, would crush us. Because none of us could ever do it. None of us could ever live up to it. So we need Jesus who did it perfectly and then died for us, for our failures, for our sin, was raised triumphantly. Now it's actually possible to walk in this. Saved by grace, now walking in obedience. So we need to see Jesus show us the life. We also must see Jesus' cross and his resurrection. And then we want to embrace this life. And as we do, we understand that now, if we're Christians, we have the Spirit of God in us to empower us for this life. Our gracious King has come through His death and resurrection and ascension. Now the Holy Spirit comes and He dwells in each and every Christian. And so He is the one at work in us, enabling us to embrace meekness, to be marked by mercy, to cultivate purity as the Spirit is at work in us. So as we hear the rest of the sermon, we trusting in Christ, we're seeking to grow in a grace-fueled, Holy Spirit-empowered obedience, conformity to his teaching. And as we grow in that, we'll increasingly look more and more like what Jesus describes here. And like so much of what we see in the Scriptures, it only begins to make sense as you walk in it. The longer we follow Jesus, increasingly trust in His grace, 
take him at his word, increasingly see the wisdom, the grace, the truth in all that Jesus has given. And as we seek to live in this life, we'll need others with us in the church. Because so often in in the workplace, on campus, in other relationships, other people will call us away from this vision. We'll say, no, there's another good life. It's much better than the way of Jesus. There's another way of flourishing. Pursue this. So we need others with us who are also seeking to walk in this, who walk alongside, who will perhaps be a few steps ahead to show us the way. People help spur us on as we seek to trust the Jesus way, his kingdom is best. I find a very important question today would be, are you a part of this kingdom? Have you come to know Jesus as king? That's the starting place before experiencing this life, the life that's really worth living. If you're not a Christian, I wonder how you currently think about what is the good life or what is the life of flourishing? And I wonder if you're honest and you think about your answer to that, is that really holding up for you? Are you knowing a life of wholeness now, a life of satisfaction, a life of flourishing? Does your worldview have the power to see it through all of life? Does it offer hope as you face death, as we all will at some point, even life after death? Friend, if you'd like to know more, we'd love to tell you more about who Jesus is if you are new to this. We invite you to join us week after week as we walk through this sermon. If you'd like to know more, you can also note it on your connection card, or I'll be at the door following the service. I would love to chat with you as well. For those who are Christians, friend, Jesus the King, our King, has come. The one who created all things has brought his kingdom of grace to us. Friend, it is in this kingdom, living in his kingdom, that true life is found. True wholeness, peace, flourishing. Friend, let's trust in him and embrace that life together today. We'll be freed to go and glorify him as we're scattered this week to the city.